Welcome back to another episode of Riddles in the Dark, a podcast sponsored by the Mythgard Institute and the Middle Earth Network Radio. Um, I'm your secondary host, Dave Kale, Director of Programming from Middle Earth Network. Let me introduce you to the Tolkien professor, Professor Corey Olson. That's good, though I think secondary host is a little unnecessarily self-effacing. But uh, <laughs> yes, anyway, good morning. Uh, we are back this morning to continue our discussion about dwarves in The Hobbit. Last episode, of course, we focused, we talked a little bit about Thror and primarily about Thrain, and I wanted to go backwards and focus more on Thror this week because we, we, did, we didn't exactly skip over him, but there's a lot that we uh, uh, we have a chance to discuss that we didn't. Now, uh, I want to actually begin, though, before we even get to Thror, I want to go back and uh, respond to a couple things that people were posting on the Facebook page and on Twitter. Um, two things in particular that I wanted to address. Uh, one was to Christine Doro, who was posting on Facebook, and uh, this is on the Tolkien Professor Facebook page, and was had some comments about the open air prison. And I, 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 I actually I think that this is a really a, a really good kind of general topic. She was saying that, uh, of course, last in the last episode, uh, I was suggesting that I think the idea of an open air prison for Dol Guldur is. Um, like I don't not that I don't think it could look cool in the film. I'm sure if they do it it'll look cool, but I don't think it really is very fitting. Um and uh Christine was pointing out that actually, you know, underground uh, uh, you know, above ground, you know, exposure prisons uh can be far more horrible than underground prisons because of course you're exposed to to the elements and uh and everything else so that, you know, it actually there's in some ways uh, it, it's not that it would be all you know bright, cheerful, and merciful as uh, as I was kind of implying at a, at a few places, but rather that it could actually be more horrible. And I, you know, I I agree with that. There's no question that you could make a really terrible above ground prison, and there's also no question that exposure to the elements and everything would be horrible. My objection to it is not that it is it is insufficiently cruel or that it leaves no possibility for terrible cruelty to prisoners, but rather that it doesn't fit very well either with what Tolkien actually describes or with what seems to me the general kind of, I don't know, atmosphere of the necromancer and of Sauron. And of those two things, by the way, I, I think the second one is more important than the first one. That is, I mean, okay, you can go, you can go and say when Tolkien describes the dungeons of, gold, of Dol Guldur, we don't get a lot of description, but he does use the word pits to describe them a couple of times. Um, I was just rereading the quest of Erebor this past week and, and pits is the word that Gandalf uses to describe, you know, that, that Thran was just thrown into the pits. Um, so <laughs> it's pretty clear that he, that, that, that Tolkien envisioned them as being subterranean, but, you know, like I said, to me, that's not necessary. I, I don't think that, you know, I'm not going to argue that the filmmakers are, are bound to, you know, just to, to, to put on screen every conception as Tolkien himself imagined it. I mean, like, you know, it's okay for them to reimagine things. That's all right. But that's why I think the second uh, objection that I had, that is it doesn't really seem to me to fit. Uh, well, I'm tempted to say symbolically, but, you know, that makes me sound like a, a an English teacher. Uh, uh, but, but <laughs> which, okay. I am, but anyway, um, it's I, I don't I, I'm not just trying to get all literary critic there. It just doesn't seem to fit with the atmosphere. Um, Sauron and Sauron's tower is all about like dark and enclosed spaces, like being open to the air and the sky and the sunlight. Especially the sunlight is something which is very uh, very contrary to everything that we get about the dark tower. Um, hence the name. And also about Dol Guldur, which we're told is very dark. It's the center of all of the darkness of Mirkwood. We, we, we see in The Hobbit how dark Mirkwood is. Not just the fact that very little light comes in uh, to the forest, but also that everything that you know everything turns black. Even the animals and butterflies and things turn black uh, in Mirkwood, except apparently some of the deer. Um, but that's a different subject. Anyway, so... <laughs> Uh, so everything is dark, and and it's hard to imagine that you know the dungeons of the necromancer himself are going to be open and airy. That just seems to me a a just it just doesn't really seem to fit with that whole atmosphere. Um, 
So that's why I'm a little bit uh, un. Uh, well, I don't know. I won't say pessimistic. Like I said, it's not that I don't think they might make it cool, but um, but it's definitely not a way that I would have done it for that reason. Yeah, I'm not buying it either. Yeah. Uh, now, the other thing I wanted to address is sort of a, a more general textual question that is uh, uh, Ed Powell on Facebook. was, And this is actually something I've heard from a couple people. Ed was the, was the most recent one who posted on this. Actually, I think, Ed, you posted on this more than once. Um, that is, you know, once recently and that you, you had already said this, you know, a while back and were kind of reminding me of it, which I think is, is, is a good point that a lot of people are, are kind of asking about. And that's a question of permissions. I've said several times that, you know, I think if you really want to understand better what they're doing in the films, read the quest of Erebor and it will really help because, you know, the appendix a material and the quest of Erebor, remember the quest of Erebor, which is published in unfinished tales is just like, you know, the extended edition. Um, it was literally on the cutting room floor when he, when Tolkien first wrote the appendices of the Lord of the Rings, they were even longer than they currently are. And he had to cut them down. And one of the things that he did was cut down, uh, the stuff, which is, which was later published in the quest of Erebor. So he was originally going to include that in appendix a, um, so when you when you when you think about the quest of Erebor, you should be thinking about it together with the stuff that we get about Durin's folk at the end of Appendix A. Um, anyway, so so you know, I've, so I've said that several times. You know that it's pretty clear that it's in this sort of post-assimilation with the Lord of the Rings material uh, version of the Hobbit story that we're that that Peter Jackson is working with in the films. I think that that's really abundantly obvious. However, several people, and including uh, – now I'm finally getting to Ed's point that I referred to before. <laughs> they don't have the rights to the Quest of Erebor. You know, that basically they have the rights to use the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, but the Quest of Erebor was in Unfinished Tales. Like, do they, do they, do they have the, the, you know, the, the, the copyright and trademark ability to, to use that material? They don't have the Silmarillion rights, for instance. Um, you know, so they can't. Uh, they can't use. They can't do stories from the Silmarillion. People ask me if there's ever going to be a movie on the Silmarillion, and I say, well, I'd, I, I, that will happen. I, I firmly believe that that will happen literally over Christopher Tolkien's dead body. Like he has control over the Silmarillion material that is in the hands of the Tolkien estate, and I do not believe that Christopher Tolkien will ever, in his lifetime, give permission for any films to be made on the Silmarillion material after after his death. Maybe his heirs will, but I, he, I, I mean, nothing would shock me more. Um, like, you know, for me, it would be like, you know, the cessation of taxes, the reversal of gravity, and Christopher Tolkien gives permission for a Silmarillion movie. Like, I consider those things in about the same category. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, so technically, yes, the Unfinished Tales material is not part of the license that, uh, that, the, that Warner Brothers has access to. Uh, however... I think that that's utterly unenforceable. I, I really don't think that it affects the film in any way. There's almost nothing. First of all, Appendix A is in the Lord of the Rings, so almost all of that material is actually there. This, if you actually make a list of, you know, facts, stories, ideas that are in the Quest of Erebor that are nowhere even implied in the Lord of the Rings in the Hobbit. Um, it's it, there's there's almost nothing. I mean, basically, the only thing I think that they would be in practice restricted from doing is using long sections of like quotations from the Quest of Erebor. Um, but I really, um, because almost everything in there could be plausibly extra extrapolated to, or even just used from references, smaller references, but still references that are there in Appendix A. So I don't think that there's any practical restrictions on them um, for taking the ideas that are used uh, in the quest of Erebor. One of the, 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 the one thing, and we'll get back to this in a later episode when we talk about Thorin, but just to use it, just to give one concrete example of what I'm talking about in the trailer, the one exchange that we get between Gandalf and Thorin, where they're talking about Bilbo, it's obviously before they set out on the journey and Thorin, you know, uh, sort of saying that he can't be held responsible and all that stuff. Um, that is clearly a concept from the Quest of Erebor. One of the primary thing that the Quest of Erebor gives that we don't get uh, in these other uh, in these other places is uh, that we 
we get the fuller story of the conversations that happen between Thorin and Gandalf behind the scenes um, and sort of Gandalf's whole side of things. Um, so that conversation seems to be, you know, one could say, sort of straight out of the quest of Erebor. But we get a little bit of it in Appendix A, that it, the, the conversation between Thorin and Gandalf. So, so again, you know, could somebody say, you know, could uh, could could the Tolkien estate come to the film and say, no, 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 like this material, that's that's unfinished tales material. That is not Lord of the Rings material. You can't use it. I don't think they'd have any legs to stand on about that because it's in Appendix A. I mean, it's the idea is referred to in Appendix A, and the the quotation, the actual line that Thorin delivers in the trailer, that's not in Unfinished Tales. Like, it's not exactly what he says. So, in practice, I think that that's that that concern is not really going to end up being relevant. So, anyway, sorry that was kind of a long spiel at the beginning, but it was it's been something that I've been wanting to address uh, about just kind of on the general subject of film adaptation that that has I think uh, some relevance to uh, to a bunch of things we're going to end up talking about. So, <laughs> so um, just briefly, we have some other good feedback from people. Um, uh, we have uh, Josh Schweigert on um, Twitter says uh, gave us his prediction. He's for last time. He says his guess is. Uh, a combination of um, A and C, which uh, to remind people was uh, A was full flashback um, of Thrine's backstory, how he was captured and ended up in Dol Guldur, which was your prediction, and C, yes. which was exposition from Thorin to others, which was mine. Um, uh, we also had um, a message from uh, Doctor Underscore Bombay, who says, uh, "Holy cats at Tolkien Prof! Just listened to episode one of Riddles in the Dark podcast. A whole episode coming about Azanolbazar, and then uh, he did an all caps hashtag swoon." <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that is coming. I think we're probably going to do that next after today. We're not going to. We're going to. Uh, we're going to avoid as much as we can talking about the Battle of Azanolbazar today because we do want to do a full episode on it because there's a lot of stuff to talk about there. I mean, the Battle of Azanolbazar is such a crucial moment, not only in, of course, in the, just in the general history of the dwarves, but in setting up the characters and the situation that we have at the beginning of The Hobbit. I mean, you know, Thorin and Thrain and, 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 and Diane Ironfoot, Diane Ironfoot and Thorin Oakenshield both get their nicknames there. I mean, there's so much that goes on there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely talk about that probably in our, in, in episode three, yep. I'm thinking. Um, we also got uh, um, another post on Facebook from Gloria Cole saying she wanted to go with option A, uh, though th she thinks it might be a small introductory scene similar to how Fellowship of the Rings opened, uh, which I think uh, sort of – that was kind of what I had in mind when I was thinking of flashback. Um, I, the one thing I do wonder about that is there seem to be a lot of things such as the aforementioned Battle of Azanolbazar, which could potentially fit into an opening montage uh, – so uh, I, I wonder which ones they'll pick. It's it's very interesting. We'll we'll get into this next time. Um, yes, yes. And then last yes. but not least, uh, we have a message from um, uh, Arthur Chenin on Twitter who says um, uh, he gave us a suggestion for a future topic, which I think is an excellent one. How will the trolls be portrayed vis-a-vis yes. -vis how they are seen in Lord of the Rings, which uh, I'm excited to talk oh, about yeah. that as well. I agree. I mean, that's one of the one of the classic moments. I mean, if you want to talk about the difference in tone between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, I don't think there is any single scene which is more revealing than the depiction of the troll. Okay, with the possible exception of the tra la la, -la song. That's the other one. But uh, but those two are the ones, you know, which were, you know, if you're coming at the story from the perspective and within the tone and idiom of The Lord of the Rings, which present a really big challenge. So, yeah, yeah, that, we'll definitely get to that. Yep. So uh, anyway, um, just wanted to remind people that uh, um, Corey has the Tolkien Professor Facebook page and also the Tolkien Prof Twitter accounts, and we love to hear your feedback and ideas and thoughts there. Um, also, uh, my Twitter account is Dave Kale, D-A-V-E-K-A-L-E, so um, uh, when you use Twitter, tweet at us both. Um, and we're also, I think we're still trying to decide on a hashtag for the yeah. Riddles in the Dark so that people can indicate that they're posting about it. And uh, as soon as we have one, we'll let you know. But we definitely send us your, your suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear us discuss. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, 
Good. Okay, well, let's get to... Yeah, let's get on with it, man. Let's get to Thror here. We've been beating around the bush. Well, I've been beating around the bush for a long time. <laughs> um, okay, so Thror. As we talked a little bit about Thror last time, and sort of the, the, the chief things about Thror, um, w- which are most interesting to think about in connection with the films especially, is the end of his career, the end of his life. He's, of course, the one who is the king under the mountain when Smaug attacks. Um, so that, too, is going to be... I mean, even, you know, we're, we're not going to do a formal prediction on this, but that, too, I think is a really interesting thing. Um, to what extent is the arrival of Smaug at Erebor uh, going to be in the film? And how do you handle Thror? Because, of course, in the book... We don't really get any details. The story of the – that is, we, we, we don't get any, any details about Thror, um, which you would think would be in some ways a really important thing. The version of the story that we get in Chapter 1 of the book is from Thorin's perspective, and Thorin survived and is able to tell the story because he was away. He was out wandering. Um, he wasn't in the mountain when Smaug attacked. So by the time he realizes what's going on, the attacks already happened. So he doesn't give very many details of how the battle actually went. Thror was there in the mountain and ends up running away and leaving out the secret door. So Thror and Thran alone emerge from the secret door, having escaped while all the rest of their people were killed. Uh, almost all the rest of them anyway, by Smaug. Um, and so that by itself is a re- you know presents some really those facts are all that were given so you know depiction wise if you were to actually depict the attack of smaug um you know what do you do with thror the king who is you know whose people are destroyed you know he must be beaten back somehow and then he just ends up sneaking out of the back door um and you know abandoning his kingdom (laughs) it's tough it's tough i mean i i don't think that you know one is obligated to do this and to depict Thror as a coward, uh, you know, running away and leaving his people to be slaughtered, um, especially since we're told that they, they did come out with singed beards. So clearly they he, they had been fighting against Smaug. Um, you know, it's not that they just, like, hid themselves away and scarpered, at the, you know, as soon as he shows up. Um but anyway, they I, do, you know, I don't blame the guy. He's he had some <laughs> he he had just like the worst string of bad luck, don't you think? <laughs> Thor, yeah, Thor is is uh, is yeah yeah he does. Well, I mean, really, the whole House of Durin. Um, you know, Gandalf talks about the singular misfortunes of the House of Durin. Um, but uh, <clears throat> and yeah, certainly, you know, like the the whole. The whole Balrog thing was kind of a downer. I mean, that's that was that was that was a that was a, a, a more than unusually serious misfortune, and um, the uh, and then you know then you go and you you restore the kingdom at Erebor and everything seems fine, and then freaking Smaug shows up and you know well and, and even between then, um, if I recall. So I, I don't fully understand why they they uh, abandon Erebor for um, the Grey Mountains. But they go up to the Grey Mountains and they run into the the so-called Cold Drakes that we don't yes. know much about. Get driven out of there, go down to Erebor, and then the dragons follow them down there. And they, yeah. they just get like they, – they're like – they get unhoused um, time and time again. They just seem to have the – just it's bizarre. They, it's like they have some kind of curse following them around. Yes, yes, exactly. Now, Gandalf attributes the singular misfortunes of the House of Durin to their possession of the Ring of Power, and specifically that Sauron was trying to get it back. Um, As you may recall, that the Seven Rings were given by Sauron to the dwarves, and of course the whole point was to corrupt them with them. He wanted to make, you know, seven, like, dwarven ringwraiths who would be cool in different ways from the human ringwraiths that he already had. Um, But they failed. You know, the dwarves just don't become wraiths. And although there is still, you know, clearly some kinds of dark influence of the ring upon them, it doesn't turn them into Sauron slaves, which was his point. So what he had done is, you know, I've compared this before to essentially a recall order. He's trying to get the Seven Rings back because, you know, uh, to, to Sauron's frustration, some bad stuff happens, but they kind of turn out to be a net 
game for the dwarves. <laughs> I mean, they're actually useful um, and actually succeed in giving the dwarves power without enslaving them to Sauron's will. Um, so basically they just don't work and he's trying to get them back and the dragons take and destroy some of them. Uh, we're told and Sauron has, has reclaimed, uh, most of them. And there was only the one last, last one ring of the seven outstanding, which was Thor's ring. Um, so he attributes the, this, uh, you know, the singular misfortunes to, 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 the fact that he had that, that he had the ring and that Sauron was pursuing him, this is why, for instance, Thran gets captured, of course, by the necromancer because he finally has the opportunity. Uh, Sauron does to to get the ring back, um, but that doesn't explain everything. I don't think. Like for instance, it doesn't really explain the Balrog. And just to to come back to a point that you made a, a minute ago, Dave, it's not. It's never been really clear to me why the dwarves left the Lonely Mountain and went up to the Iron Hills and then came back. Grey um, Mountains. The Grey Mountains, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the Iron Hills are where they the sort of like... The Iron Hills are like the suburbs of the Grey Mountains. Um, yes. And it's where the rest of the people of Durin kind of hang out after the after the, the, the conquering of Erebor by Smaug. That's why Dian and his people are there uh, and can come marching down in time for the Battle of Five Armies. They're like the um, significantly less nice suburbs. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, but though I think that in calling them the Iron Hills, I think that one of the things that he's implying is 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 that there is iron there. So, I mean, I think that like the dwarves, I mean, they're, 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 they're kind of cool, though it's it is like you know definitely moving to a to a to a lesser neighborhood. Um, but anyway, nevertheless, that's 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 kind of where they eventually end up. But but yes, why they move to the Grand? I'm not really sure. It's never been totally clear. I mean, we're we're told about the move, um, but there's no like there's no Balrog driving them out. You know, they're not driven out of the Lonely Mountain. They just go. And then they come back later on after they are driven out of the Grey Mountains um, by the by the cold breaks, as you say. Yeah, I sort of got the impression that um, uh, basically just there were so many that, that sort of the bulk of the people were in the Grey Mountains at that point, And it just seemed like kind of the place to go if you wanted to be uh, king of all the dwarves. And so Erebor was kind of the... You know, Erebor just is constantly getting relegated to colony status. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, it's you know, it's 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 lonely. I mean, it's it's a mountain all by itself. So it's it's a, it's a smaller kingdom, uh, mm -hmm. and it's out of touch with the rest of them. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that the people of Durin are only one of the seven houses of the dwarves, um, and we're told that in the Dwarfen Goblin War, which culminates in the Battle of Azanulbazar, it's not just the people of Durin, but all of the dwarves of the seven houses that they can possibly round up, come down uh, and fight in the Dwarf and Goblin War. Um, so there are other totally unrelated to uh, Thorin and Balin and Gimli and all of them, uh, totally unrelated families of dwarves who are still living in the world. And many of them also seem to be up there too. So there is, I think, you know, a sense of, uh, a sense of the dwarves of Erebor kind of, you know, going to be a part of the larger dwarf community, which is sort of up there, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there's more than just the house of the house of Durin. Um, of course, those people who have read the Silmarillion will remember that we see two main houses of dwarves. Uh, that is, we see the, the two great dwarf kingdoms of Nograd and Belagost in the Blue Mountains um, in the Silmarillion. Those are the dwarves who are interacting with the story. They're the ones that fight alongside the elves at some points and against the elves at other points uh, in the Doriath incident, for instance. Um, and those are neither one of those. Like, th those The dwarves that we meet in the Silmarillion are not the people of Durin. That's not Thorin's ancestors. They are totally unrelated to them. They're two of the other seven families of dwarves. That whole time, Durin and his descendants are in Khazad-dûm. They've already built Khazad-dûm and are living there um, during the First Age, you know, happily. Somehow, it, their, their bad luck doesn't seem to have started. Somehow they seem to miss out on all those horrendous events throughout the First yeah. Age. Yeah, exactly. They have They're doing pretty good then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Khazad-dûm is already called the greatest. I mean, it's the greatest of the, of the, of, of the dwarf mansions um, already in the First Age. Uh, and and then it's not until, of course, they can't uh, have their Balrog problem until after the first age because the Balrogs are still up pounding on the elves uh, during the first age. The Balrogs don't take.
take refuge deep beneath the earth until the end of the first age comes. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, exactly. That Doran's people are not are not cursed from the beginning in that way. And again, this I think is one of the reasons why uh, Gandalf is sort of saying, really, things you know, things kind of hit the fan with Doran's people when they get the Ring of Power. And that's not just because like the Ring of Power itself brings a curse, but Sauron is actively pursuing them. I mean, like they are they are high up on you know Sauron has a list of people that he's trying to get to, and they are up there. Just as, for instance, uh, the Dunedain are also high on Sauron's list of people he really quite wants to stomp. And that's why you've got the Witch King of Angmar, the Lord of the Ringwraiths, uh, going up into the north, setting up his own kingdom in Angmar, setting himself up as the Witch King, and you know, fighting these long wars to try to stamp out the North Kingdom, which eventually he does. Right. Um, so, I mean, there are reasons why you get all of this bad stuff happening in the North Kingdom of Gondor and in the South Kingdom. Lots of, you know, sort of conspiracies of bad stuff happening down there, too, um, though not quite as successfully as in the North Kingdom. Um, but anyway, basically, uh, Durin's folk are on that list also. And so, therefore, Sauron is kind of coming after them and hatching these sort of long-term uh, uh, plots against them to try to bring them down. So... Sauron definitely plays the long game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. You don't want to be on that list. So, um, okay, so Thror, uh, he, he has a, a very interesting history. He's, he's, he's king of, um, the, of Durin's folk. He's the heir of Durin. Um, he, uh, he becomes king when they're in uh, Erebor, I believe, mm-hmm. um, after they're driven out of Khazad-dûm. Um, he abandons that for the Grey Mountains. He gets driven out of Grey Mountains uh, by the Cold Drakes, and while he's while that happens, I believe it's his. Um, oh no, he doesn't become king then. It, he uh, uh, it's his father, Dine the First, is king, right? And right. when they're driven out of the Grey the Grey Mountains, um, that's when Dine is slain by the uh, Cold Drakes, and I think his brother is also killed. Um, is that right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, he's he uh, Thror is one of three brothers. Mm-hmm. Um uh and yeah, his his father was 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 Dian the 1st. Mm-hmm. Um he uh the 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 1st was the one who founded Erebor originally. That's why um that's why the Arkenstone is called the Arkenstone of Thryan. It's not Thorin's dad. Um, that's just a coincidence. It's the Arkenstone of Thryon the first because he's the one who found it. He's the one who founded the kingdom of Erebor originally. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but Thror is the one who really reestablishes the kingdom in Erebor. Um, and so in that way, uh, it's not in, it, this is one of the things that makes what Smaug did in a sense, more personal or at least more immediate to Thorin. I mean, immediate, like, okay, yeah, this horrible thing happened to his family in his lifetime. That makes it pretty immediate. But um, but the king, they have a different relationship with Erebor. Thorin has a different relationship with Erebor uh, than he has with Khazad-dûm, for instance. Because, yes, Khazad-dûm is the ancestral home of his family. That is the place where they really belong. They, you know, in a sense... You know, they talk about their halls in exile. Thorin is living out in the Blue Mountains to the west of the Shire uh, before they before the the story begins. But um, and he calls that you know their halls in exile. But Erebor itself was already you know a, a hall in exile in exile from Khazad Dûm when they were kicked out by the Balrog. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's all, you know, to some extent, you know, when, when, he, when he's trying to get back to the Lonely Mountain and reclaim their lost kingdom, it doesn't have exactly the, the kind of force of we shall return to our ancestral home. Their ancestral home is Casa Doom, mm-hmm. um, which they haven't forgotten about. And right. if they could leave the Lonely Mountain and move back to Casa Doom, they'd do it in a heartbeat. Um, but, but... It is his family home. You know, it's it is important to him, not just because, it, you know, of course, it was a, a, a terrible insult uh, by uh, by Smaug, never to be forgiven for for, you know, and that he wants vengeance. But, you know, his granddad was the one who reestablished that kingdom. It's like that's that's their family place. Um, you know, so it is it's kind of personal to Thorin in that way, not in the like grand ancestral sense, but but sort of more personal. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, Erebor is where his his own family has really established themselves. Um, yep. So. So, okay, yeah, so... so after the uh, after they get driven out of uh, Casa Doom and then driven out of the Grey Mountains and then driven out of Erebor, finally, uh, yeah. they eventually have to. Most of the dwarves go to uh, the Iron Hills, which um, uh, Jessica, one of the reporters from Middle Earth Network, just tweeted at us, uh, called the uh, Dwarven Ghettos. Um, yes. <laughs> um, actually, I think I think Thror, Thrine, and Thorin end up in a worse place. They end up in the hills of Dunlin, correct? Yeah, um, well, they're sort of yeah, out they, west. Exactly. I mean, you talk about talk about slumming. Um, but then they do <laughs> they they do establish halls out in the Blue Mountains too. Which remember the Blue Mountains? There's a little bit of Blue Mountains left on the coast of Middle Earth near the near the Grey Havens and mm-hmm. stuff. That's you know there's there's like a little bit of Blue Mountains. And again, if you remember your Silmarillion, the Blue Mountains are the huge range that separate Beleriand from the rest of Middle Earth. Um, and that's where the dwarf holds were originally. So there actually is, I would say, certainly the uh, the, the their place in the Blue Mountains is, mm-hmm. you know, culturally speaking, a step up from the hills of Dunland, certainly because that you know that the, the Blue Mountains were the ancestral home of some of the dwarves yeah, before they inconveniently fell into the ocean at the end of the first age. But still, the, originally the Blue Mountains were were a dwarf stronghold, and we know that dwarves still live there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, though, again, yes, most of Durin's people are in the Iron Hills. Right. Um, yep. Yeah, okay. But so wherever so, it is, wherever it is, they ended up. They're they're pretty disappointed. Uh, yes, and uh, yes. Thror eventually gets uh, uh, tired of the tired of it, and and Thrine, of course, eventually gets tired of it as well, as we talked last week. Yes. And so um, uh, Thror decides, you know, why not? Let's uh, he'll go back with just his one servant and try to reconquer Moria. Um, yes. And before we get to that, because this is going to lead us to our prediction of the episode, um, I did want to talk about the artif- briefly about the artifacts that he leaves in the keeping of Thrine, because uh, we talked about these last time, because uh, uh, Gandalf gets them from Thrine in the uh, in the open air dungeons of Dol Guldur, <laughs> and get, passes them on to Thorin. But uh, so he he uh, Thror leaves his map that he drew, and I believe also does he also leave the key? Um, yes. And then yeah. I guess the ring too with Thrine. Yes. Yeah. The, the the key, by the way, has an interesting history. Uh, that is an interesting history in the writing of the book. In the first draft of the Hobbit, and this is not the first edition of the Hobbit, which got updated in 1947, um, the one where he changed the whole Gollum story and the finding of the ring. But um, but it, it, just between the writing of the first draft and what was actually published in the first edition in 1937, in, in his initial revisions, one of the changes, that, uh, one of the biggest changes that Tolkien made to the story was the addition of that key. In the first draft, uh, Gandalf gives uh, to Thorin the map. Um, and I, for purists out there who know the, for the drafts of The Hobbit, of course, neither Gandalf nor Thorin was named Gandalf and Thorin in this first draft. They had different names, too. Gandalf was named Bladorthin, and Thorin was named Gandalf. But anyway, um, it's, it becomes <laughs> tremendously confusing. Uh, the name Gandalf gets switched to the wizard, not until the, the arrival at Lake Town, when Thorin crawls out of the barrel on the shores of Lake Town. That's the first time in the original writing of the manuscript Tolkien calls him Thorin. Um, he was Gandalf all the way up to that point. Very confusing. Anyway, um, so I'm not going to use that terminology because it's way too confusing. When Gandalf, uh, Gandalf gives Thorin a map in the first draft, but he doesn't give him the key. Uh, you'll remember when the trolls are fighting and afterwards Bilbo finds a key on the ground, which turns out to be the key to the, to the troll's cave where they find the swords in the first draft, the key that he finds on the ground that falls out of the troll's pocket is the key to the lonely mountain. Hmm. And so it's another one of those like crazy strokes of luck. Like the trolls that they happen to meet happen to have, you know, gotten somewhere because, and it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's fancy. They've kept it because it's treasure, right? You know, obviously they've never used it. Uh, You know, it doesn't open anything that they know of, but they just kept it because it was like, 
shiny. But anyway, um, they, so the, the, the tree, the, 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 the key that falls on the ground, they look at it and they're like, hey, this is not a troll key. This is a dwarf key. And, and Thorin is like, I think I shall keep that. And so later on when they get to the Lonely Mountain, you have, and you have all of these kind of unlikely events and sort of the prophecy that's coming true. You have the additional element of, oh, and this random key that we found on the ground that the trolls had also turns out to be the key that opens Lonely Mountain. Now, Tolkien seemed to think that was kind of taking the whole phenomenal strokes of luck thing one step too far. So as when he was revising that first draft, he made the key go along with the map and be given to uh, Gandalf by Thryon, who then gave it on to Thorin. Um, so that's just kind of an interesting uh, sort of tidbit about the key. But it's it, it's its attachment to the map then becomes a package deal. There are three things that three things of important that Thor still has in his final days of poverty in exile. He's got the map that he made. He's got the key of that side door that the map reveals, and he has his ring of power. Um, And he gives all three of them to Thryon before he goes to Moria. And this is the thing that the dwarves don't know. They know that the, House of Durin had a ring of power, but they don't know that Thror gave it away. So when he goes to, this is why, as we're told in the Lord of the Rings, when Balin goes back to uh, to try to to resettle Moria, um, he's hoping to find the ring of power there because they think that Thror had it. Um, Poor guys probably would have wanted to know that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it, it is a little bit uh, a, a little bit unfortunate that they that they weren't aware of that. Uh, and you'd think, I mean, Thrain, who is at the Battle of as an old bizarre world, is has it in his possession right then. You think he could have mentioned it to somebody? Like, oh, by the way, we're not. Uh, um, you know, like they found no ring on the body of Azog. Well, no, of course they didn't. Thrain still got it standing right over there. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, that, that's uh, yes. Uh, there are times when too much secrecy can definitely cause problems. Um, so anyway, so 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 Thror gives those three things over to Thran, but only the two, of course, the map and the key, come to Thorin because Sauron does manage to get the ring back from Thran in the uh, pleasant and open-air dungeons of Dol Guldur. And, um, uh, the, but the other thing that I wanted to, to emphasize about the key and the map especially, uh, this is a thing which I am, you know, we're not, we're not going to do a sort of a specific prediction about this, but one of the things that I am really curious about is how they're going to handle the moon letters on the map. I'd be mm-hmm. shocked if they don't do the moon letters on the map um, at all. I think it's going to happen because it's cool. But you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot in my Hobbit book is the fact that the 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 letter the the, the moon letters they're not a set of instructions. It's a prophecy. It's not. It's not a how to. I mean, it's it's it sounds exactly not like a treasure map. It's like take go to this go to the gray stone and take five paces to the south and then turn and you'll see the. It's not like that at all. It's not instructions on how to open the door. It's a prophecy of the moment when the door will be openable. You know, stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks, and the last light of the setting sun of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. It's a prediction. This will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, and when when it does happen, it is clear that like th- what is happening is this portentous and indeed fairly explicitly supernatural event. And this, you know, this finger of sunlight comes through the rent in the clouds as the thrush is not as, is singing and, uh, and, and falls upon the keyhole and it wouldn't have happened on any other day. And they happen to be standing there and have the key in hand and can turn and open it. Um, in other words, what I'm getting at about Thor here is what was going on with him? <laughs> it's like when he wrote these moon letters, he's not, you know, he's not saying like, okay, you know, here's how you find the door because it's hard to find. He's not saying here's the knack to opening the door because you know the key is kind of tricky and you got to do this. He's writing a prophecy. He's he's making a prediction mm-hmm. um, of this sort of portentous thing. Now, the fact that in the Hobbit itself, Thor is totally off stage. I mean, you know, is is barely even alluded to. Um, he is, but not very much. Um, 
he gets alluded to more often than any other time, Thror is alluded to just genealogically. That is when Thorin calls himself Thorin, son of Thran, son of Thror. Um, that's that's about the most play that Thror gets in the in the actual Hobbit itself. Um, and it's again in many ways, I think it's it's kind of a good thing. Um, but but again, what's what is going on with him? How how supernatural? How prophetic? How predictive? How mysterious? Are they going to make? the finding of the secret door. Are they going to play up that aspect, which I think is, 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 is very present in the book. Um, or are they, are they not going to go there? Are they not going to make it kind of mystical and mysterious, the finding of the door and the, and the, and the moment of the opening of the door? That's, that's an interesting question because I certainly think thinking back to the last time I watched the Lord of the Rings films, they, I think they downplayed a lot of the sort mm-hmm. of prophetical, um, yes. prophesied type. They didn't have Boromir's dream. Um, yes. I don't recall them getting too much into the various kinds of prophecies floating around Aragorn. I mean, they downplayed exactly. the whole. They downplayed his destiny the whole time. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk mm-hmm. about the um, the talk much about the Galadriel's prophecies that she sent to um, um, Aragorn, Gimli, and uh, Legolas, so... Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the biggest example that I can think of of, of, just of the things that you're talking about is the paths of the dead. Right? Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, it's like I am, dude. I have magic sword. You should listen to me. Um, that's it, like how it's done in the film. Um, where you know there is none of the you know you don't get any bit of oath breakers. Why have you come? To fulfill our oath and have peace, right? I mean that that this is it, it has been foretold. That the heir of Isildur shall come one day and shall summon them, and they realize finally the prophesied day is coming. And we even have the kind of foil to Aragorn uh, in 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 Baldur, the the prince of Rohan, who swore the rash vow that he would walk the paths of the dead, and whose skeleton they find lying there when they go through. You know, so you have this clear illustration. You know, the time is not come. The destined moment has not arrived, and 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 you're absolutely right. That that element is completely absent, um, certainly from that moment in the films. And I think you, you know you point out several other really good examples. So I agree. Given the press, the, those precedents in the Lord of the Rings films, I'd be a little surprised if they if they go here. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, I, I, th- I mean, certainly as I've as I as I uh, ha- well. I'm not sure what tense to use of my book because I have written it, but it is not yet released. So, anyway, <laughs> None of us has I, read it. <laughs> right. That I do argue in my book, um, I think, is a pretty prominent uh, theme mm-hmm. in The Hobbit itself. But I'm, I'm increasingly thinking we won't do it today, but I'm thinking we may have to return to these central artifacts. Um, yes. uh, and uh, maybe we'll have a whole episode just about artifacts and we can talk a little bit about – we can get into uh, Verlin Flieger's talk from um, uh, MythCon. But uh, yeah. I think we need to have a central artifacts chat and make a prediction about uh, how the, the map will be uh, executed. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, we can we can talk about uh, Sting and Glamdring and Orchrist in, in, mm-hmm. in that part as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's uh let's let's continue our our uh painstakingly relentless drive towards today's <laughs> prediction. Uh, yes, exactly. So let's get back to Thor and his and his final Let's talk his, about the yeah, Thor's um uh unseemly end. <laughs> yes, unseemly indeed. Um so yeah, so he shows up he shows up trying as you say to single-handedly resettle Moria and and he took a servant. Uh, he's not completely single-handed. He's uh, right. got his buddy Nar, right? <laughs> right. Who's, right. I'm sure it was a no, great I, deal of help. Who needs an army if you have Nar? <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, what what Tolkien makes pretty clear in the appendix is that Thror is completely barking mad at this point. I mean, he's uh, he's a little more gentle than that. Um, that is, you know, he says that he was a little cracked, perhaps. Um, but uh, anyway, so um, 
A little crazed, sorry, not cracked. It's a synonym, actually. But anyway, he was a little crazed, perhaps, with age and misfortune and long brooding on the splendor of Moria in his forefathers' days. Or the ring, it may be, was turning to evil now that its master was awake, driving him to folly and destruction. Um, and he is living in Dunland, as you say, uh, and he goes north. Uh, so, of course, you know, from Dunland, he's on the other side of the Misty Mountains, uh, but he's he's actually not all that far uh, from Khazad Doom, certainly closer to Khazad Doom than he is to Erebor at that point. But he's a little crazed. Um, yes. And then when he goes into Moria, he's not trying to reconquer it. He's just claiming it. He walks in like there's nobody there or like anyone who is there is going to just bow before him because he's the rightful heir of Durin returning to his ancestral home. Uh and Nar doesn't even go in with him because Nar realizes what a bad idea this is um, and hangs around outside waiting to see what's going to happen to his poor, crazy old master. So, you know, one question there is, like, how crazy is Thor going to be? Um, you know, mm-hmm. are they going to are they going to are they going to play that up or are they going to play that down? And, and how, how could you really? How could you really play it up unless you've given the guy significant screen time to demonstrate what he's like when he's not crazy? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, or I mean, or is that that? Because I mean, we know that Thor has been cast. I mean, he's he's gonna appear because they have an act. They're paying an actor to yeah. to, to portray Thor. Specifically, uh, let's let's go ahead and mention him by name. It's a gentleman named Jeffrey Thomas. If you look him up on IMDb, he's done some pretty awesome stuff. He was in. Uh, Played Titus in the uh, first season of uh, Spartacus, the the I believe it's on Showtime, the extreme, the basically three hundred style, extremely violent and filled with nudity and sex, uh, um, but very historically accurate, I'm sure, <laughs> telling of the Spartacus story. And he played uh, a character named Jason in the old um, uh, that old Hercules Legendary Journeys TV show, which was a really high quality one and same with oh, he man. was he was on Xena as well so this guy's just was in all the hits there you go but yeah he's so he's been cast so it seems highly unlikely that he won't appear in some form or fashion uh, but i think right, a lot man. of it's going to come down to how much screen time he has and how much time they have to tell his actual story right and does uh does th- does the part that Jeffrey Thomas is cast for end up just being crazy thrower um, which is possible. Like, we want to hire you to play an insane old dwarf who gets decapitated immediately. Um, <laughs> yes. That uh, it's quite a resume builder, no doubt. Yes. Um, yes. But, Maybe they only they only hired him for his head. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, does that mean they have to pay him less if his whole body doesn't appear on screen? <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, but that's exactly the question. So he so he waltzes in, you know, says I'm home, and the the orcs take him and chop his head off. But of course, the death of Thror is really important uh, in the story because it is it's it is the event which kicks off the enormous dwarf and goblin war because the goblins don't just kill him. Had he just disappeared in Moria and, you know, and Nar come back to Thryon and said, um, uh, you know, yeah, Thror just waltzed straight in through the gates of Khazad Doom and never came out again. You know, I don't think anything happens. Um, but Azog the Goblin, who is the, the king of the goblins at that point and who is based in Moria, um, does this horrific and pointed insult where he takes Thor's body and he, uh, he, 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 he cuts off his head and he carves his own name into the, into the flesh of, of Thor's forehead, carves his name Azog across his forehead. In dwarf runes. In dwarf runes to make sure they can read it. Uh, and says, you know, go back and tell his family that I killed him and I will treat any other beggars who come here. And, of course, even just that insult, the fact that Thror has come uh, as a returning king, right? You know, this is the return of the king. Well, not – it doesn't go so well. Um, but he's marching in like returning royalty like, and, and is being treated and being mocked for being a beggar. 
um, and being turned away as if he were just begging for pennies at the door. And it, it, that insult by itself is a very serious insult under the circumstances. And then you add the fact that, you know, like, you know, tell his family I killed him and I will do it again if they come this this way um and they you know so he 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 and he throws him a coin a, a bag of small coins again sort of you know an, an insult like since you're here to beg here i'll give you a little handout um and this is when you know when thrain hears about this you know it cannot be born um he says and they swear vengeance and this starts the war um so again i think the question of how Thror will be treated, whether he's going to be crazy, whether, you know, is his return to Moria going to be depicted as a noble but misguided thing? Um, Is he going to be, I mean, I could see them playing it in a couple different ways. I mean, I could see him depicted not as like, I'm so crazy that I'm just basically giving myself up, but you could imagine him being sort of betrayed in some way or ambushed or something. I don't know. I mean, there are lots of ways that they could do it, depending on how they want to depict Thror, how they want the audience to respond to Thror. Do we see him as a victim? Because, I mean, if I were doing it, my temptation would be to sort of make Thror the kind of symbol of the whole family, you know, of like the misfortunes of the family. Um, that, you know, if, uh, if, if Thorin's family is one which is, you know, a noble, indeed a royal line, which has fallen on hard times, um, Thror is kind of the poster child of that. Mm-hmm. And I think could easily be made anyway into the poster child of that. Yep. Um, and that's kind of what I would, what I'd be tempted to do if I were, you know, if I, if I were writing this screenplay and if I were doing that, I would probably not want his only screen time to be him looking crazy and foaming at the mouth and stuff. <laughs> I think, uh, I think, uh, you know what I think we need to do? I think we need to read um, the uh, full Azog quote. Um <laughs> Because this is an awesome quote. I yeah, love yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. All right. If beggars will not wait at the door but sneak in to try thieving, that is what we do to them. If any of your people poke their foul beards in here again, they will fare the same. Go and tell them so. But if his family wishes to know who is now king here, the name is written on his face. I wrote it. I killed him. I am the master. <sighs> It would be pretty awesome if they uh, just plopped that quote directly into the uh, film. Yeah, yeah, yes, it would, it would. And he Nar tries to take the head with him, um, but uh, Azog says, "Drop it, be off. Here's your fee, beggar beard." Uh, and he throws the bag of of, uh, of money, and so that's all that Nar takes away with him. We, we um, should mention that Azog has also been cast. Yes, yes. Um, and that more than anything else, um, I remember the day that that was announced. I remember the day that we first learned that uh, Azog had been cast. And I, you know, my first thought was I was really excited. It was actually one of the one of the, one of the one of the casting announcements that excited me more than any of the rest. Because as soon as I heard that Azog had been cast, I was like, "Awesome! We're gonna get the Battle of Asnul Bazaar." Then there's no other excuse to cast Azog if we're not gonna get to see at least some, at least a glimpse of the Battle of Asnul Bazaar. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I thought that was I thought that was awesome. Then later on, I had a a kind of a dark suspicion, which I hope turns out to be wrong. Um, and that is like, what if they're actually going to combine the characters of Azog and Bolg, his son? Uh oh. What if they're casting Azog because they're going to make Azog the leader of the goblins in the Battle of Five Armies? That was my. That was like the dark suspicion, which uh, came in the dark of night later on. Um, that's but I hope true. That Maybe they're going to excise the Battle of Azanolbazar entirely. Because it's you know you see. No. I know, but anyway, we'll talk about the Battle of. of, of we'll, we'll talk about that next time. But um, <laughs> but it is true that like you do get like the multiplication of goblin leaders, right? And like why try to differentiate Azog and Bolg if you can just have the one, um, and have the and and especially if they could roll the whole like vengeance for the death of Thror into the Battle of Five Armies too. Like I can kind of imagine them doing. I hope this doesn't happen, but I can imagine them doing that. Um, so anyway, yeah, the, a a two minute um, uh, 
cameo at the beginning of the movie seems like a waste of this seven foot uh, one former pro wrestler guy that they cast as Azog, uh, <laughs> yeah, who is also in Game of Thrones, by the way. Um, yeah, I, mean, I love the fact that he's Gregor Clegane <laughs> in Game of Thrones. That is like what a resume this guy is going to have. <laughs> Gregor Clegane and Azog the Goblin. Yeah, so we'll we'll talk more about how, what we think they'll do with uh, Battle of Az and Noel Bazaar next week, and also just 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 gush over how much we love that battle. Um, uh, <laughs> yes. But yes. Uh, so I guess it's probably time to make our prediction. Um, yep. Definitely. So we don't make Corey late for class. Exactly. <clears throat> so um, as you can probably guess, the uh, the prediction for this episode, listeners, is how will Thor's death be portrayed or handled, and Recall um, that whenever we pose these questions, it also always has the additional qualifier of on screen in the theatrical release. Because uh, if we if we open it up to can it be in the special features, then we just go down a rabbit hole. So will it will it be on screen? You know, how will it be portrayed on screen in theatrical release? Because it's it's too easy to imagine that they'll just film lots and lots and lots of extra content and they just dump it in an extended edition. So right. Um, right. And although <clears> we will someday see the extended edition and therefore know, nevertheless, yes, yes. Yeah, I we'll agree. be waiting much longer for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we're not that patient. No. Yes. So yes. here are our options. This this episode, we also have a multiple choice for option uh, answer. Um, uh, so option A is we're going to see the full gruesome scene unfold on screen, including Nar picking up Thor's disembodied head and seeing the name carved into it. That will have the awesome quotes, everything. They're basically just going to take the take the scene from the book, you know, with some changes, of course, and actually put it in there. That's option A. Um, Option B is uh, that uh, the story will be told by a character, probably Thorin. So it won't it, – it, it, it'll tell the story. You know, it'll maybe be like a 30 seconds, a minute of um, uh, exposition. Um, option C is it'll be mentioned in brief, probably in reference to the wars between the goblins and the dwarves. What I mean by that is just simply that they'll just say, you know, um, oh, this dates back to when they killed our killed my grandfather Thor, and that'll be it. We right, won't ever... but nobody sits down and actually narrates the story. Yeah, exactly. Option D will be uh, it will be left out, and the origins of the war between the dwarves and the goblins will be changed. Which is, I just tossed that in there, but that's interesting. Your mention about the possibly they'll conflate the uh, Azog and Bolg and conflate uh, as a Nobazar and maybe the Battle of Five Armies. That's in, that's sort of getting at the same idea that maybe they'll sort of alter the, the origins of the story. So um, so those are our options. The scene will be shown on screen. Um, it, it will just be exposition. It will just be like a one-sentence comment or it'll be left out entirely and they'll change the origins of the story. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, of course, as we mentioned, that both Thror and Azog have been cast which would seem to, if you take sort of the the straightforward interpretation, that would seem to indicate, oh, maybe they're going to do the scene. But um, I, that's not necessarily true. It could be that Thror has been cast for flashback scenes to remembering the good old days of uh, Erebor before they got driven out, or Thror running with the map and the key through the secret door. So I, I don't right. think in, I don't think it guarantees in any way that this this nope. particular scene will be included. Yeah, I mean, we can definitely, we could definitely have, you know, as you said, Thror escaping the Lonely Mountain. Um, if they do an on-screen depiction of the fall of Erebor and Smaug's invasion, I would expect Thror to be cast in that. I mean, think of how, I mean, they cast somebody as Elendil, uh, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, and he didn't get a whole lot of screen time. You know, he was there to be there in uh, in the Battle of Dagorlad in the opening sequence. So. It's conceivable, therefore, that Thror could play that kind of a role in the film. Um, so I agree. It doesn't necessarily prove. However, nevertheless, my prediction is A again. I'm voting for I'm, – I'm voting for Nar on screen holding the decapitated head of Thror with Azog carved across his, his forehead. That's what I'm going with. I think you may be prone to wishful thinking a little bit. <laughs> You've noticed this pattern already. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I shall try not to vote continually throughout our, our, our episodes for everything being in the film. But I yeah. but I do think Or at least I, specifically I, the things that you love. 
<laughs> yes. Well, I'm an optimist. What can I say? But yes, no, no, I am. I am, and, and, and I'll give my reasoning for this. The reason I think it's going to be in the films is that whether they do, in fact, because I think it's compatible with either one. If they're going to set up the, the battle of Azanul Bazaar and give us that, then they're going to need to show the reason. And I think that that image, that image of, because of, you can do, you don't even have to give the speeches. All you need is Thror's head with the name Azog burned into it, or, or you know, it's carved into it, and you've got like your reason for the war. But if they're not going to do the Battle of Azanul Bazaar and they're going to roll it into the Battle of Five Armies at the end, it still is going to give the force behind. I still think we get Azog killing Thror and Thror's decapitated head because, again, then that gives us. Um, I, I would expect there to be an actual recollection of this. If it is Azog who shows up at the Lonely Mountain at the end, I would expect there to be some visual reminder of the death of Thror. <clears throat> Not like Thror's head, because it would be really old at that point. But um, but like that, you know, the name Azog carved in that way, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I, just, I, I would expect there to be... A recollection of it again i'm trying to think here not just as somebody who loves the books and is trying to and is like wishes to see these things on film but rather thinking about it is sort of telling this in a visual medium i think that that one image is a really powerful image in a way that you could on screen give you know a sort of a one-shot glimpse into the entire backstory of the grudge between the goblins and the orcs that's so, an interesting that's an interesting point i certainly i, I certainly think that if they do do the whole conflate Azog Bolg thing, then it seems likely that to me makes it more likely that we'll see parts of this scene. Because you're right, I'll need to. Uh, you'll lose sort of the the effect that you get from the Battle of Azanolbazar stuff. Uh, so you still need that really driving emotional thing that 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 uh, um, to motivate the enmity between the goblins and the dwarves. So that's a good point. And and I'm I'm gonna just toss in that. Um, I think that it, I think if if any piece of th- of Thror uh, post um, um, mauling by the uh, goblins shows up on screen, that counts as a. So even if they don't do the whole scene, <laughs> if we see his head or right. his headless body or anything like that, even in a brief flashback, when they see Azog or Bolg leading the goblin army over the uh, hills down at the Lonely Mountain, and then they if they do this thing where all the dwarves remember, you know. Uh, uh, um, uh, Thror's disembodied head, uh, then that's fine. That counts as A. Yep, yep exactly. And, and which is the same as last week. Yes. I don't think necessarily that we're going to get the capture of Thran as part of a sequence. Like, you know, we're just kind of going through and it's, it's, it's part of the, I expect to get it in a flashback. Um, and I would expect that here too. So it may be kind of embedded in the context of some exposition by Thorin, for instance, mm-hmm. but I still expect, I, I, I expect, I do expect to see the dismembered head of Thror on screen. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, yes. So I say A. Hmm. Interesting. Boy, I'm really torn. I certainly <laughs> think – yeah, and I'm, I think as this goes on, I'm going to learn to write these questions a little bit better because uh, uh, I, I sort of agree that you certainly aren't going to s- – if they tell the story at all, if they have a character doing exposition, they're not going to just do that. They're definitely going to show something on screen, even if they don't give us a five-minute scene. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, so, so I'm I'm always like in for a world of hurt when I do A and the the options like A and B because there's no way they'll do B without A here. Well, they're um, certainly not going to do like three minutes of just talking with yes. just accompanying it. Yes. I mean, that, but 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 it could just be sort of a smaller. Mm-hmm. Referenced. I mean, you know, they could uh, I think, for instance, of uh, uh, something like the exposition that um, Aragorn gives. This is in the extended edition, of course, not the theatrical cut um, of the Baron and Luthien story. You know, when he just tells Frodo about it by a campfire, um, you know, we don't get any visual, any visuals there at all. Mm-hmm. We just hear about it. Um you know, we get certain things told us um, and described to us in the Council of Elrond in the film, which we don't see. So it's not that there's no precedent for that kind of thing. Yes. But Hmm. Well, I think I'm going to go, uh, uh, just because I'm such a contrarian, I'm going to go with C <laughs> again. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> I th- I think I think at the end of the day this thing's going to hit the uh 
the cutting floor um, when they get into the editing room and they're trying to keep trying to trying to keep this thing under two and a half hours. I think um, I think they're just going to uh, they're just going to mention it. They're going to be like, oh yeah, that's the guy that killed our uh, our old you know my grandfather Thor and made us really mad. I think the scenes that we'll see Thor in will be him alive and happy and well in in the lonely mountain and him fleeing Smaug and uh, maybe some kind of um, meaningful emotional scene where he's passing on their artifacts to Thran um, before he takes off for Moria, but um, I don't I don't think we're gonna get to see him uh, being beheaded, having his head carved on, or his body hacked at by a bunch of goblins. Also, that would be pretty gruesome on screen. <laughs> yes, yes it would. <laughs> yes it would. All right. Well. Okay. Good. Um, I'll be interested to see uh, what our uh, other analysts say. Um, let's just briefly do some announcements. So we have yeah, confirmed yeah. – um, I think we've confirmed four four different uh, – or analysts from four different um, uh, entities at this point who will be joining us. Um, American Golden Star, the hosts of uh, the Casual Stroll to Mordor podcast and, and proprietors of the website, which is the largest Lord of the Rings online site on the web – uh, will be joining our game. They will be doing a segment on their weekly podcast uh, where they discuss this, although they said they're going to take a more humorous uh, approach. Um, uh, they will be making predictions, uh, as will Father Roderick from SQPN, the uh, Catholic New Media site, um, specifically on his Secrets of the Hobbit podcast, which I am also on. So I will be um, uh, probably – him on. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yes, yes. I will be instigating. Um uh, we will also have John D. Bartolo from the Lonely Mountain Band, um, and he's also uh, director of special projects at Middle Earth Network. And then uh, finally, we will have Arwen and a few other reporters from Middle Earth News, um, and also from a new podcast they're launching this Friday called Warriors of the Westfold, where they discuss um, uh, Tolkien and other Hobbit-related news. Um, and so all, all those people... Uh, hopefully by the end of this week, we'll be sending us their predictions for the first question, and uh, we'll be announcing their participation. And then next Tuesday, we will be we will start our sort of we are back and forth rotation. Um, uh, each Tuesday, uh, or not each Tuesday, every other Tuesday, we will of course do an episode like this where we do our episode and we announce the question. And then the following Tuesday, we will announce our um, other analyst predictions. Um, do a blog post um, on the Mythgard site, and also hopefully if uh, people consent to do um, audio recordings of themselves making predictions, we will do a sort of an omnibus digest of their predictions, so more audio content for you guys. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that that should be fun. So we'll be able to see, you know, be able to hear us talk about it first, and then uh, our partners kind of talking about it. We're going to keep track of everybody's predictions, and uh, do keep sending in suggestions for topics and your own votes. Um, down the road, we're hoping to have um, a, a sort of a more interactive platform where you guys can uh, can make comments and and uh, and, and register your votes uh, mm -hmm. on the predictions and stuff too. Um, and all of that stuff will be living on the MythGuard.org website for the Myth. Guard Institute. Yep. So it's very exciting. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, yeah. This has been fun. It's, it's been fun already, and we've only just started. Yep. So. And of course, uh, we know what next episode's topic is going to be, so let's leave you anticipation. It's going to be yes. the Battle of Azanol Bazaar. The Battle of Azanol Bazaar. The Grudge Match. <laughs> the Burned Dwarves. Oh, that's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, so, we will spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> so that'll be next week. Excellent. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.